So, what about the pigs? There are 2,000 pigs that just died. Why didn't they just swim? Why was this okay? This is perhaps the most common curiosity that we face when we listen to this text. And there's a difficulty here in terms of trying to figure out who owned these pigs and for what purpose. Mark doesn't come right out and say, are these Jews or these Gentiles? I have my preference, but I wouldn't stake too much on it. First, let's suppose that they're Jews. Perhaps they were selling these pigs to their Gentile neighbors. But maybe rather they were Jews with a very loose interpretation of the law. Jews who didn't take God's law seriously. Some have suggested even there was a civil law in the region. That swine couldn't be kept. I couldn't quite trace it down to the finest detail to say that confidently today. Um, regardless, do we see where this is going? These Jews didn't really want the Most High God near, as that would affect them in their unfaithfulness to him. It was nicer to have to live on this side of the lake, where openly rejecting God's law could be done with less fear of rebuke. They were living in compromise and rejecting God's old covenant standards. Now, to take this view, there might be a weakness here in terms of the demons um, really greatly desiring to work out God's judgment. Then again, there's a thorn in the flesh of, of Paul's side uh, that's both for his good and also described as coming from a messenger or an angel of Satan, same word. On the flip side, let's suppose they're Gentiles. Are they using them for idolatrous purposes? Do they have them here? Are they tempting the Jews with them to be unfaithful to the Lord? Uh, many simply just say there's swine in the region, therefore they have to be Gentiles. I find that argument weak uh, when we read the Old and New Testaments. Where do we see that the physical descendants of, ja of Jacob are this obedient people to God's covenant. And these really aren't trivial questions when we, con we consider the entirety of the story. If these were Jews, there's a warning here of illicit gain. It's seen by the Lord, and the Lord's not apathetic to that. It's a warning that all of God's commands are to be obeyed. And we can't lightly regard God's revealed will. These are Gentiles. The common takeaway is the value of the restored man is far greater than uh, worldly goods. And also that we can't serve two masters. We can't serve God and money or God and mammon. Either way, there's a lesson here for economic disaster and how would we respond? Perhaps we could take some comfort here knowing that regardless how how far the dollar and the stock market plunges. Jesus is still king. His domain is not in the least bit shaken. And he's still going to accomplish what he set out to accomplish. And also, either way, we see the horrific effects of these demonic spirits. We see the destructive nature of their goals. Last bit of curiosity here. Why did the swine die? Why didn't they just swim? Um, again, there's a there's a bunch of opinions here. Um, perhaps the the demons um, in possessing the swine drove them into the 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 water. Perhaps the pigs were so vexed by the demonic spirits possessing them that they drove themselves because they'd rather be dead. Um, either might explain why they were unable to swim. Something 
interesting from ancient history. There's a, a, a Latin writer who lived around the time of Jesus. And um, he said in the Gadaris also, there is a lake of noxious water. If beasts drink it, they lose their hair, hooves, and horns. So, enough for an introduction. These are speculative aspects of the text. Let's move on to some more sure footing. So, last week we looked primarily at Jesus in both his mercy and in his authority. Both are clear themes of our text. Mark put other stories of Jesus' great authority over the created order, over disease, and over death before and after this account. Our passage today paints a very clear picture that Jesus is Lord both over the demonic realms and also over his own kingdom, over his followers. Mercy is also a clear emphasis as when Jesus commands the now sane man to announce what had happened, Jesus specifically includes his own mercy as a part of that announcement. We are thankful to serve Christ, who can do all things, yet he cares for us miserable creatures who live in a universe that's been transformed by sin, and who also add to that, min- that misery by contributing with our own sin. The one who is Lord of the seen and the unseen also condescends, and he cares for us. These two great truths are glorious in themselves, but when taken together, we can really be a a joyful, a steadfast, a thankful, and an amazed people. Now today I want to make several applications from this account. The first is simple. There are evil beings outside of humanity. This is not a theoretical thing. This is not religious mania to say something like this. In fact, many look at this story and they want to say this man was what we call today mentally ill. And these people were backwards and unscientific and they didn't understand this, so they said he had a demon. Well, if that were true, the swine wouldn't have died. The drowning of the swine alone debunks this kind of interpretation, which many throughout the years have taken. There's the classic cop-out way to misunderstand the idea that there's an evil outside of humanity, the, the devil made me do it kind of approach, but that's not valuable either. There's something to understanding the general misery of mankind, those who Satan has blinded to the gospel. Also, it's important in this life to understand we, fo- we fight against multiple forces to do what's right. We have our own sinful tendencies, uh, but we also have satanic and demonic influences. One thing to take to heart is the great comfort that Paul can write that we are not ignorant to Satan's schemes. To use a sports analogy, his playbook is laid bare for us. Christ is the victor. But Bible knowledge is important here. The playbook's open to us, but we have work to do to get that knowledge and to act upon it. 1 Corinthians 7, a a wife or a husband who withholds sexual relations bearing a specific exception opens us up to temptation from Satan. Paul Paul writes that. In Ephesians 4, right after the verse to not let the sun go down on your wrath is the verse to not give the devil a place or a foothold. In 1 Peter 5.8, be sober, be watchful. 
Your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so forth. We have these scattered throughout the New Testament. And we should not take these things lightly. There is an active, real adversary who is powerful. But we have Christ's victory in the gospel. He has overcome. He has, and he's also preserved for us important warnings and knowledge in the Bible to not fall into the devil's traps. We want others to be brought into this victory, to be transformed in the kingdom of his beloved son from Satan's power in darkness. Next, let's look back at the description of this man at the beginning of the text. To get the setting right in this part of the world, uh, we... We don't want to be thinking of something like cemeteries in America where people are, for the most part, buried six feet below the ground. Um, these are like caves or carved rock um, in the sides of mountains or hills where, the, where this man would have been. Um, so him abiding in these places was possible, unlike we might think today, um, how we envision cemeteries. And we have this demon-possessed man, the typical motivations that, apart from the Lord, to be a functioning member of society, you know, the desire to make a living, the fear of man, um, your own reputation, family dignity, the law of the land, relationships, whatever it was. He was far beyond caring for any of these things in his demon-possessed state. They frequently attempted to bind him with chains, and they were unsuccessful. Wycliffe was free in his translation of this passage. He said he had broken the stalks to small gobbets, which means pieces. Um, and, and two famous hymn writers who wrote uh, a collection of hymns called The Only Hymns, John Newton and William Cooper, they wrote a hymn about this passage, and the, the first verse goes like this. Legion was my name by nature. Satan raged within my breast. Never misery was greater. Never sinner more possessed. Mischievous to all around me, to myself the greatest foe. Thus I was when Jesus found me, filled with madness, sin, and woe. So from this man, in the description of this man, I want to make a couple of observations and applications. The first is a picture of the power of our tongues. Comparing with the rest of the scriptures, we get a large window here into demonic possession. Can you think of any other passages that present such a hellish and an uncontrollable picture? I can't help but think about the other passage that also speaks of something that can't be tamed. Let's turn to James 2. James 2, 6 through 8. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. In this way the tongue is set in our members, staining the whole body, and sets on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire by hell. 
For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and sea creatures, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But the tongue, no man is able to tame. The, the inability to tame this demoniac is worded very similarly. And notice still another parallel here. This man was controlled by hell, and the tongue is set on fire by hell. While James goes to great lengths with vivid imagery to explain the problem of the tongue, there's definitely some correlation here. So let's use this man and the demons possessing him to get a more sober and a more godly view of how the Lord sees a lax attitude toward the words that we say. Gossip, slander, ranting, quick-tempered outbursts of speech, complaining, and so many other sins come right through the tongue. Some even boast in these sins. It's become fashionable um, in this world to boast in some of these things, but we must see them through the lens of Scripture. Phrases like, I gave him a piece of my mind, said in a positive way. Or I just needed a rant. Or I went unfiltered on him. They might be socially acceptable in a lot of places in our culture, but they're indefensible in light of God's word. We need to see the tongue the way God does. And like this man, we need Christ's mighty power through the Holy Spirit to tame our own tongues. We need to see the hellish fuel that's flaming and gratifying our flesh when we use our tongues in a way more consistent with the way Satan wants us to use it than the way God does. And this isn't a light matter. Again, James speaks much more about the tongue in this passage, describes it with much more detail than these two items. But there's at least these parallels, and we can at least think more seriously about how God used this. Can we not reflect upon what James has written with this vivid and destructive illustration in Mark 5 of this demon-possessed man? And James goes on in, in great detail, and perhaps sometimes you lose the se severity of the argument, so I just wanted to highlight a, a, a small portion of that and how it relates to our text today. The next lesson, also related to the book of James, is a picture of a false faith. The demons believe and tremble. At the most basic level, there are people who genuinely believe that true faith is merely believing in God's existence. It's as if the secular humanists and the atheists have so taken the day that true religion is mere acknowledgement that a God exists. It sounds ridiculous probably in this building, but that degree of ignorance is, is out there. But James is arguing against something much stronger when um, in James 2. An argument with someone with, such, with, with some degree of correct theology um, cannot rest assured that merely just having a few things right is saving faith. Right theology is a good thing. There are many today who could recite that they believe Jesus died for their sins, or they prayed for God's forgiveness, or whatever other expression they might wish to use, and their lives show absolutely no fruit. Let's look at the faith of the demon or the demons in Mark 5. They run to him, and they fall down at Jesus' feet. They acknowledge his reign and his authority. 
They acknowledge that God is supreme and Jesus is the Son of God. There's a degree of respect here, kind of like a, a criminal who's caught and he has the decency to respect the police officer and the judge and to admit to the crime. There's a degree of fear that God is all-powerful. In fact, we could even say there's something of a right understanding that fear is a proper response to an encounter with Jesus. We also see something of, of a foretaste of the great day of judgment coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. We know that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. But there's also a fear of God that never moves past the trembling. And when the encounter with the Lord or the near-death trial is over, that, that fear is soon forgotten. and Life goes on just the way it always had, with no real regard for the things of God, perhaps even hostility to those things. And this is what James is dealing with in James chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. But one will say, you have faith, and I have works. Demonstrate to me your faith out of your works, and I will demonstrate to you out of my works my faith. You believe that there is one God. You do well, and the demons believe and tremble. Do you want to know, a vain man, that faith without works is dead? Judas learned all kinds of things that we will never know on this side of eternity. He walked, he had a ton of revelation from the incarnate God. There's a common false teaching out there. It's dealt with over and over again in church history. It may have come in slightly different passages, but it's the same error, and it isn't a light one, and it's the same error that James dealt with in James chapter 2. Trying to convince one of assurance of salvation on improper grounds, if the person believes you is necessarily going to do serious harm. Our faith has a vital doctrine of justification and a vital doctrine also of regeneration. Both are essential to the gospel. A man who is saved has a right standing before the Lord and also has a new heart. He can say the sinner's prayer a million times. He could believe that Jesus is the Son of God you can have an interest in a religious understanding. There's so many ways that you could um, have those things but still not be one of his. Saving faith is to repent and believe the gospel and to continue in that faith and repentance. Obviously, such a faith would manifest and it changed the life in works that correspond to the professed faith. There's a lifeless orthodoxy that can exist. We could get all the questions right. But if we're not born again, there's no forgiveness with God. And you're still a rebel to his throne. So, enough turning to the book of James and making applications. Let's look at the end of this passage in Mark 5. Verses 14 through 20. Those feeding the swine fled and announced it in the city and in the countryside. And they came out to see what had happened. And coming to Jesus and seeing the man who is demon-possessed sitting and clothed 
and of a sound mind, the one who had the legion, and they feared. Those who had seen it described what happened to the demon-possessed man and concerning the swine. And they began to appeal to him to leave their region. And embarking on the boat, the formerly demon-possessed man appealed to Jesus that he might be with him. But Jesus did not allow him, but said to him, Go into your house and to yours, and announce to them as much as the Lord had done, and that he had mercy on him. And he went out and began to preach or proclaim in the Decapolis as much as Jesus did for him, and all marveled. I want to make a few comments on this text. The word parakaleo, um, it, it's translated a variety of ways, appealed to, urged, request, implored, in other places even comforted or encouraged. Not, those aren't a great fit here. It's, there's a wide range of uses. It's used a lot in the New Testament. It's used a lot in the passage that um, we read. It's used in 5.10 with the demons, asking to be to not be sent out of the region. It's used in 5.12 when they want to be sent into the swine. It's used in 5.14 for the people asking for him to leave their region. And it's also used in 5.18 for the formerly demon-possessed man asking to be with Jesus. We see nobody tells Jesus to do anything here. They're all making appeals and they're making requests to him. They know that he is the ultimate decision maker. They all need his permission or his consent to do what they wanted to do. And then if we think back from the beginning of the story to the end of the story, we see some connections here. In verse 5, in chapter 5, verse 5, he's crying out. All night and all day he's crying out. And then in verse 20, he's now using his voice to advance the kingdom, to proclaim the excellencies and the power of Christ. In the uh, initial dialogue recorded here in, in verse 7, we have that phrase, uh, this man or the demons, it's hard to say who's controlling his tongue, um, asks, what do you have to do with me? And now, in verse 18, he wants to be with him. What an awesome turnaround we see in this man. What a great story of restoration to a man totally given up to the demonic, now using his God-given lips to proclaim the excellencies of God. He's pointing now. He's now pointing people to Christ as his lips. And, and there might be a parallel here in terms of his request in verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 14, when Jesus um, picks out the twelve. Mark may be making the point that this man wanted to be just like the rest of the twelve, um, but it's the exact same wording, but the words are pretty simple words, so uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be taken that way. And many have taken this whole passage to be an illustration of salvation. We consider the influences uh, upon this man at the beginning, his sin, the deliverance by Christ, and the great change in this man. So let's look through these responses in the order listed. So in verse 15, they see the demon-possessed man sitting and clothed and of a sound mind, the one who had the legion, and they fear. We think of this in connection with the other passages surrounding it. After Jesus calms the storm on the sea, they also, the disciples, fear. 
People who sin, so everyone, find close encounters with the powerful, the powerful God to be terrifying. From Sinai to John in the book of Revelation, falling is dead at the sight of Christ. Over and over again, we see a picture of terror as men in their current state encounter the power of God. We go on in this text. Uh, the people now understand better what happened and their reaction changes. They are now asking him to go away. Yes, Jesus might be powerful, but he might also interrupt your life. Was it the compromise that the Jews wanted to hang on to? Was it the attitude, Jesus is okay and I'm okay with the Bible, but I don't really like what God says about that one thing. I want him to stay at arm's length. I acknowledge he's powerful. He has a right to do whatever he wants. But I can't give up this one area to him. Is that you today? Are you harboring a pet sin that you know will lead you to destruction should you not repent? Is your devotion enough to fool people in this building and in your home? But really deep down there's a gulf set between you and the Lord. And you don't want to him coming an inch closer to deal with your pet sin. Your precious sin that's too dear to you. Perhaps it was the compromise of possessions. Jesus can be bad for business. Standing up for this perversion or that wicked action or idolatry or whatever might increase your profits. Jesus may promise to take care of my needs, but material prosperity, it might be best achieved by compromise with the world. Some might reason. Also, illicit gain is clearly dishonoring to the Lord, both in the sin committed to get it, and also distrusting the Father to provide for our needs. We still see people today sometimes make an unpopular, but a righteous stand. And they sometimes suffer financial hardship for that. So check the attitude of your heart today. How do you receive correction? What's your posture toward a friend who points out sin in your life? Brothers and sisters, don't allow sin to grow near and dear to your heart where we start to push Christ away. The former demoniac's request comes next. He wants to accompany Christ. There's no doubt there's some kind of merit to this desire. He wants to serve and learn and grow in the Savior. But Jesus doesn't grant his request. But Jesus does have work, important work for this man to do. There's now a witness in this land who could tell of the merciful and mighty Christ. A land that wanted Jesus away now has a herald of his might and of his mercy and an unmistakable reminder of his great works in this man. This man obeys and he spreads it through the Decapolis. It's this region that describes a a ten-city region. There's a commissioning here by Christ. This man obeys in the response to his proclamation of what Christ has done and his mercy is that the people marvel. We do serve a wonderful Jesus and one who's done many great things. And also remember, Christ is going to come back to the Decapolis later in in Mark's Gospel in in chapter 7. He's going to do more miracles. This man is doing an important work beforehand. At this point, I want to take a step back and make an observation. There's three requests of Jesus in this text. There's one from the demons. Jesus grants it. 
There's a request from the people to get out of town, and Jesus grants it. And there's a request from the man um, to whom Jesus was merciful in exercising the demons, and Jesus denies it. Can't we take a lesson here in prayer? Just because God may be granting our desires doesn't mean that all is necessarily well. God may allow unbelievers to get a lot of what they want in this life. Life going the way we wish is not necessarily a sign of God's favor. People can actually pray horrible prayers. Jesus, get away from me. Quit bothering me about this sin. Just like in this text. And the scariest thing of all could be for God to grant that petition. On the flip side, religious ambitions might not be met for some people. That doesn't necessarily make them wrong. But we ought to respect the Lord's rule in choosing to use his people in whichever way he pleases. Perhaps our gifting's not there. Perhaps deep down our ambition is really about ourselves and making our own name great, and therefore it's best for us to to be in other roles. Perhaps we're neglecting more important things that also that ought to be taken care of first. Perhaps the Lord wants a laborer for himself somewhere else. There's so many reasons, but we have to follow the Lord in this. Today we really have an issue in our own country with this. This man has religious ambitions, and they were redirected by God, and that's okay. Jesus can do whatever he wants to with those. But we have some missionary efforts with little or no attachment to the local church. We have many folks who think they can just set up a new church on their own authority. Somehow, God directly empowered some man to set up this, this new church. The missionary efforts we see in scripture are all tied to divinely appointed authority. The church planning activities, they're, they're tied to divinely appointed authority. One of the abuses in our hyper-individualistic way of looking at the world in America is to forget that the Bible does not prevent, present the faith as just between you and God. There's a church. There are elders to rule and to teach and to direct and to shepherd. There's a congregation as well. If necessary to rebuke the elders, God set up a structure and we ought to heed it. It comes from him. We have preachers and Christians who get disciplined out of one church and rather going through the God-ordained process of restoration back into that church, they just start a new church or go somewhere else. This isn't good for our witness and this is dangerous for your soul. There's another lesson here. To do our work diligently for the Lord, even if it's in obscurity. We don't even know this guy's name. It was it was hard when preparing. What do I call him? The man, the demon-possessed man, the formerly demon-possessed man. God didn't even preserve this man's name. But he's doing what the Lord's called him to, and that's great. How thrilled would we be if we read of in Scripture, the Lord had mercy on us, he rescues us, and then he commands us to do something. And then if the next verse in scripture says, and we did it, this man did good, great things with his life. This wasn't a life wasted. This was a man used for the glory of God in publishing the wonders of Christ. And what is this man given instead of a place with the twelve? The things he was already supposed to do in a message. What kind of condition was his family in? No father and no husband and home, assuming assuming he was both of those things. 
He was neglecting his first and most basic responsibility to his family. There's nothing noble in forsaking your God-given duties to be extra religious. Sure, there's a warning that if your closest relations are holding you back from following the Lord, the Lord must come first. That's clear in Scripture. But there's nothing commendable in forsaking what is needful and using Christ as an excuse. A man or a woman who forsakes his or her family for ministry and does not do well with the rearing of children or providing for them or so on is not in the Lord's will. Take a lesson here from this man. There would have been some humbling and tough conversations for him to have when he came home to his relatives. There might be times in life when the most spiritual thing you could be doing might be changing diapers or teaching your children to read helping your elderly parents balance a checkbook or go to the doctor's office. For most of us, becoming a believer doesn't involve moving to a foreign country, making dramatic career changes. God uses people for his kingdom in all sorts of different places. We have various gifts and circumstances. We must be faithful whether our name is known by many or few. Whether our name is remembered much beyond our family when we die isn't important. Faithfulness in joyfully serving Christ in the works that he's prepared for us is important. With these lessons in mind, we thank the Lord for what he has done, for what he has preserved for us in this gospel, in this account, for his merciful power, and for rescuing his people from under Satan's grip. Lord, we thank you so much for this passage that you've preserved. And Lord, we thank you that you have overcome Satan and the powers of darkness. And we thank you that you rescue people today. Lord, I do pray that we might have a more sober view of how we might use our tongues, of what true faith is, Lord, of prayer and of what our role is here in our lives to serve you in the places where we are, to desire to advance your kingdom and to do the work necessary to do that and to be content with whatever you might have set out for us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Any-